just a record of all of the inhabitants of Rome, and they were required to give their names, their occupations, their place of residence, the amount of property they owned, and so forth. And then the Roman government would use these lists for two purposes. They would use them for military purposes to draft people into the Roman army, and they would also use them for tax uh, purposes to uh, collect taxes from all of their inhabitants to maintain the, the government of the Roman Empire. And these uh, censes were held about every 14 years. In fact, there are still existing records from these uh, censuses or censes. I don't know what the plural is exactly. I'm weak on my Latin. But these, uh, these lists were developed every 14 years, and we still have records of every one of these censuses from 20 A.D. all the way up through 270 A.D. So every 14 years or so, one of these would be held. Now, the Jews at this point were exempt from service in the Roman military, but not from taxation. So they were required, like every other inhabitant of the Roman Empire, to sign up for tax purposes. And we'll see just in just a moment some of the significance of that for, for our story this morning. One of the details in this uh, passage that critics of the scriptures often questioned was the fact that people were required to go to their own hometown. Verse 3, everyone was going to his own city, it says. You know, in our country, when the census is taken, they come to you. They come to your door or send you something in the mail. But Luke tells us that at this period of time, people had to go someplace to their own ancestral home, their own hometown, Uh, to sign up for this census. And people questioned this. It seemed too convenient to them, as we'll see uh, in just a moment. Uh, A fact that Luke manufactured in order to make it seem like a prophecy was fulfilled. But uh, a number of years ago, a papyrus fragment was discovered in Egypt. And this papyrus fragment contained an order from the prefect in Egypt that all of the inhabitants of Egypt were to go to their own hometown to register for the census. And for the first time, we had extra-biblical confirmation that this was, in fact, the way these were conducted in, in scriptural days. And so we have confirmation from that source that Luke is actually quite accurate on this point. There's another uh, part of this narrative that's been questioned by critics. That is the fact that uh, Luke tells us the census was taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, the reason people have questioned the scriptures on this account is that we do know that Quirinius was governor of Syria from 6 A.D. to 9 A.D. But that's much too late to have been the time period for the birth of Christ. We know that Christ had to have been born no later than 4 B.C. because he was born before King Herod died. And we know that King Herod died in 4 B.C. So we know that Jesus had to have been born before then. And so critics of the scripture say, well, Luke just goofed up, bless his soul. He uh, just got this Quirinius mixed up with somebody else. And that's an honest error. It's the kind of mistake that anybody can make and just kind of patted him on the head and sent him on his way. But in the meantime, over the last number of years, uh, some inscriptional evidence has been unearthed by archaeologists that indicate this, that this Quirinius was governor in Syria from 10 B.C. through 7 B.C. also. There was a three- or four-year period uh, from 10 B.C. to 7 B.C. when Quirinius did his first tour of duty as the military governor 
in Syria. So we've since discovered that Quirinius actually did two tours of duty as the governor of Syria. And you'll notice that Luke tells us in verse 2 that this was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor. This indicates that Luke was familiar with a second census. And this is the one that was taken in 6 AD. We have a good deal of confirmation about that census. And Luke himself refers to that second census in Acts uh, chapter 5. And so we realize now, on the basis of this information, that this Quirinius did the tour of duty as a military governor earlier and very likely, and Luke tells us, certainly conducted a census at about that time. So once again, the accuracy of the scriptural record is confirmed as more information becomes available. I just mentioned that to you because it's uh, common for people to criticize the scriptures and accuse it of containing certain errors of fact or history. And yet each one of these supposed errors has been cleared up uh, to everyone's satisfaction by the discovery of more more details. So if you come across one of those, someone claims there's some kind of contradiction or error, they either misunderstand the scriptures or they don't uh, understand the history or more information needs to come to light. But Luke over and over again has been confirmed by this information as a very accurate historian. And so as a result of this uh, decree, everyone in verse 3 was proceeding to his own city, and this included uh, Joseph in verse 4. Let's read verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. So Joseph, as everyone else did, proceeded to his own city, which would be the birthplace of his ancestor David. David was born in the city of Bethlehem, and so all of David's male descendants were required to go to Bethlehem to register for this census. There's something of beauty here that that I want you to see that you can just sort of miss if you glance through this record. Joseph and Mary lived in the city of Nazareth, small town, but much bigger than Bethlehem, which was about 80 miles to the south in Judea. Mary evidently was advanced in her pregnancy, and one of the things that gynecologists will tell you not to do is to travel in the later periods of your pregnancy if you can help it. So here are Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, and she's close to term. And yet the Old Testament... And Micah 5.2 said very clearly that the Messiah would be born, not in Galilee, not in Nazareth, but would be born in Bethlehem, 80 miles to the south. In fact, that's how King Herod, remember, knew where to look for the Christ child. When he heard from the Magi that a king had been born, he wanted to find out where the Messiah was going to be born. He consulted his biblical scholars and they came back with the answer, Bethlehem, because it says in Micah 5, 2. So Herod sent out an order that every male child under the age of two in the village of Bethlehem was to be uh, executed in order to protect his, his claim to the throne. So how was God going to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy? Joseph would have no reason to go there on business or on pleasure, probably have no reason to go there to see family. 
So how did Gadot do it? Well, he appointed uh, Caesar Augustus as the chairman of the Prophecy Fulfillment Commission. Uh, and I just kind of love the way God does it. You know, he has just one little thing to accomplish here to get this couple from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south, but he does things on a grand scale, arranges for the, the emperor to send out this decree to the whole world just in order to maneuver his chosen couple to Bethlehem. I just like him doing things in that sort of grand scale. But you see here in this story the sovereignty of God, his sovereign control of all of history. Here is the mightiest man in the world, an unwitting pawn in the hands of a great and sovereign God. Now, Joseph was required to register for this census because he was a male. Mary was not required to go with him. She was required to pay tax, but she wasn't required to register. So one of the questions that comes up is, why did Mary go with Joseph? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that Joseph was uh, her coach, and uh, he could... He could count like anyone else, and he knew that uh, he knew that she was close to term. And I think he really wanted to be there for the birth of this child. He wanted to go through that experience uh, with Mary, and did not want her to have to give birth in Nazareth while he was uh, in Bethlehem. So he saw to it that she was able to to come with him. And I think a second one is perhaps even a little more. Uh, sobering, and that is for us to think for a moment about the position that Mary was in. If we begin to think about the position that she was in, we begin to realize how well God had chosen her to be the mother of the Son of God. You know, Luke tells us quite explicitly in verse 5 that at this point, uh, she w- they were only engaged. They were not married as yet. They were engaged uh, to each other. So this marriage between Mary and Joseph did not take place until after Jesus was born, evidently, and the marriage was not consummated until after the birth uh, of Christ. Now you realize then that this would have meant that Mary, in a small town with a very conservative, arch-conservative morality about these sort of things, was pregnant out of wedlock. And she gave birth to an illegitimate son. In fact, this rap on Jesus uh, clung to him for his entire life. If you remember in in John chapter 8, when Jesus is involved in a dispute with the Pharisees, one of the things that they fling at him in their argument is they say to him, we are not sons of fornication. The implication being that we know that you are. You were born illegitimately. You were born out of wedlock. So you you put Mary back in that small town in Nazareth. She's just a teenage girl, probably, 13, 14, somewhere in that uh, that range. And uh, her pregnancy can no longer be concealed after a time. And she would have experienced, I'm convinced, a good deal of ostracism and rejection from that very closed uh, community. Now imagine her trying to explain to her family why she was pregnant. That would have been a totally incredible story. They would have said to her, Mary, look, you're really reaching on this one. (laughs) And she would have realized that she would have simply had to suffer this kind of treatment uh, in silence. Now, Joseph knew, remember, the angel had come to him and had to convince him 
Joseph was a tough sell, but the angel convinced him of the truth. And Joseph, I believe, knowing the truth, wanted to stick by Mary and to protect her. But you realize how much Mary sacrificed, how much she was willing to give up in order to be the mother of this child. I remember when, when Debbie was pregnant with our first child, one of the delightful parts of that experience was the joy that our friends and family expressed and how much excitement there was and the showers that were thrown and her friends taking her out to lunch and just bubbling with excitement as we anticipated the birth of this first one. But here is a, here's a pregnancy that Mary's family would have been inclined to hush up, to conceal, would have been an embarrassment to the family name and the family reputation. And Mary had to do without all of that excitement and without all of that uh, attention because of the nature of her pregnancy. And I believe Joseph wanted to protect her from that sort of treatment. He knew how difficult it was for her in Nazareth. And so he, he brought her with him to Bethlehem. Then in verse 6, it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Eighty-mile ride on the back of a donkey probably had something to do with that. (laughs) And then in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You'll notice that Jesus is described as Mary's firstborn son in verse 7, indicating quite clearly, as the scriptures indicate in other places, that she had more sons after this. Our friends in the Roman Catholic Church believe that Mary had only one son, but the scriptures indicate something different. She gave birth to her firstborn, not her onlyborn son. And then she wrapped him in cloth. These swaddling cloths would have been a little square piece of cloth, similar to a diaper with a long... Uh, a long string attached to it or a long strip attached to it and the, the cloth would have been put in place and then the baby would have been wrapped tightly with these swaddling clothes. That was the custom in that time to wrap the baby fairly tightly rather than loosely as we do. The, they felt that the tight wrapping of the infant gave it a sense of security. And so Mary herself, after giving birth to her firstborn son, was the one that wrapped him in swaddling clothes. This was normally done by a midwife or a member of the family, but Mary had no one there to do that for her. So she was forced by the circumstances to to, uh, wrap her own baby in his his first swaddling clothes. And we're told that uh, she laid him in a manger. Manger is just an antiquated word for feeding trough. The first crib that her firstborn son knew was a feeding trough place where animals went uh, to feed. And I expect that was another part of this that would have been difficult for Mary at times to deal with. Joseph was a carpenter. I'm sure he'd made a whiz-bang crib, and they had the nursery all set up in Nazareth. And I remember how special that uh, it, it was for Debbie to decorate that first room and turn it into a nursery and all the sorts of frilly things that were in there. I was so glad that we had a girl for our first, you know. But the, the, the little mobiles that were attached to the, the crib and the stuffed hearts and clouds on the wall and so forth, a lot of care and detail and all the anticipation that, that went into to bringing her firstborn home and, and placing her in that nursery that had been so uh, carefully prepared. And I remember the crib was a really big thing 
for us, for Debbie especially. But we kind of scouted all over town looking for just the right crib, and I saved up and bought it to her, bought it for her for a Christmas present. And we got real sentimentally attached to it. We're going to hang on to it, and she's going to give it to our kids when they have their firstborn. Because that crib even gets sentimentally attached to that. And here was Mary with her firstborn, and with all of the longings and the desires that any new mother would have, uh, forced to place her her firstborn uh, in a in a feeding trough for its first bed. And you begin to realize just how well God had chosen Mary, that she was willing to undergo all of this without complaint because she knew what this child uh, would mean mean to others. Now, we're told that the reason that it took place where it did, that she was forced to use a feeding trough for the baby's first bed, was that there was no room for them uh, in the inn. I remember reading about a, a Sunday school class putting on the, the Christmas play, and one boy was played the part of Joseph and evidently got his lines mixed up or forgot the key line, but the dialogue went something like this. Joseph comes up to the inn and raps on the door and says, I need a room for, for me and for my fiancé here. The innkeeper says, Sorry. All out of rooms. You got the no vacancy sign up out front. You must have missed it. No rooms. And Joseph says, but, but sir, you don't understand. My fiance is pregnant. And the keeper says, well, I'm sorry. It's not my fault. Joseph says, well, it's not my fault either. <laughs> but if you understand something about what these inns were like, especially in a small, out-of-the-way burg like Bethlehem, these were not exactly destination resorts here. In fact, the typical inn of that time would have been an open courtyard with just a series of stalls arranged around it. And if you were lucky, if it was a four-star inn, there might be a covering over your stall. And there would have been perhaps a well in the center of that courtyard. And that was pretty much it. Innkeeper would provide some food for your animals, which would be kept out in perhaps a cave behind the, the inn. But you had to bring your own food, no room service, no restaurant. So these uh, inns would have been primitive, the most primitive of conditions to begin with. And yet Murray was not even able to settle for that. Uh, Justin Martyr, who was an early church father, writing in about 150 A.D., says that Jesus was born in a cave, and that's quite uh, likely. Caves, the, the limestone hills around Bethlehem, there had many caves in them, and these were often used as a place to provide shelter uh, for animals. And so very likely the best the innkeeper could do was to give them a place in the cave where the other animals uh, were kept. And in that cave, uh, and laid in that feeding trough, which likewise probably would have been cut from limestone, was where Jesus was first placed. And we don't know how accurate the pictures are that show the animals uh, lowing and the sheep gathering around. That, that may very well be accurate. I remember reading about one girl who was drawing a picture of the nativity scene, and uh, she showed it to her father, and there was this little short fat person in the, in the nativity scene. And her father said, well, well, well who, who is that? She says, oh, that's Round John Virgin. Round John Virgin. So, now, and we know he wasn't there, but... We don't know about the uh, we don't know about the other animals, but it was into this uh, set of circumstances that uh, that Jesus was Jesus was born. I came across a description of this, what this birth must have been like, and I wanted to read it to you. It's, a, it's somewhat lengthy, but I ask you to indulge me. I think it brings it to very vividly home to us. 
The sheep corral, filthy as only an eastern animal enclosure can be, reeked pungently with manure and urine accumulated across the seasons. Joseph cleared a corner just large enough for Mary to lie down. Birth pains had started. She writhed in agony on the ground. Joseph, in his inexperienced and unknowing manly manner, did his best to reassure her. His own other tunic would be her bed, his rough saddlebag, her pillow. Mary moaned and groaned in the darkness of the sheep shelter. Joseph swept away the dust and dirt from a small place in one of the hand-hewn mangers carved from the soft limestone rock. It was covered with cobwebs and debris fallen from the rock ceiling. There, as best he could, he arranged a place where Mary could lay the newborn babe all bundled up in the swaddling clothes she had brought along. There, alone, unaided, without strangers or friends to witness her ordeal in the darkness, Mary delivered her son. A more lowly or humble birth it is impossible to imagine. It was the unpretentious entrance, the stage entrance of the Son of Man, the Son of God, God of very God in human guise and form, upon earth's stage. In the dim darkness of the stable, a new sound was heard. The infant cry of the newborn babe came clearly. For the first time, deity was articulated directly in sounds expressed through a human body. Those sounds brought cheer and comfort and courage to Mary and Joseph. These peasant parents were the first of multiplied millions upon millions who in the centuries to follow would be cheered and comforted by the sounds that came from that voice. Poet put it this way, They were all looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. Thou camest the little baby thing that made a woman cry. Well, now that the birth had taken place, the next thing that happens is for a birth announcement to take place. And that's the record we find in starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. They realized right away that this birth announcement could have gone out uh, to anyone. If you and I had been in charge of this campaign, we would have contacted uh, Barbara Walters or uh, Eyewitness News or someone to give this announcement. But instead, the Lord chose shepherds. And the significance of that has to do with the class of people that shepherds were. Shepherds were the basic lowlifes of this culture. They had no opportunity to maintain ceremonial purity. They could not worship regularly at the synagogue or the temple because they were forced to live. The the word that's translated stay really means to live in the open fields, away from population centers. And uh, so they were ceremonially unclean. Also, their character was not above reproach. The rabbis tell us that they tended to confuse the possessive pronouns mine and thine. (laughs) Couldn't keep those straight. What's mine is mine, what's yours is mine, seemed to be their philosophy of life. And because of that, they were not allowed to testify in a court trial. Their reputation was so tarnished by that. And yet it is to these that the angel came with the birth announcement. Now I expect that God looked around for the softest hearts that he could find 
to bring the word of the birth of his son. He looked in the palace of King Herod and saw a hard heart. Looked in the fortress of Antonia where they, the, the Roman soldiers were and saw hardness of heart. Looked in the synagogues and in the temple to the priests and the Sadducees and he saw hardness of heart. But he looked out in these open fields uh, and saw this uh, ragtag uh, bag of shepherds, rejected, ostracized, uh, lonely, uh, little in the way of education or wealth or reputation going for him, and saw in them a heart that was soft to spiritual things and soft to the things of God. He says, I'm going to go to those guys first. And so, in verse 9, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. With no warning, no prior announcement, just suddenly an angel appeared before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. I picture these shepherds, uh, it's night has fallen, they finish their meal, or passing around the coffee pot for a second round, one of them's putting another pinch between his cheek and gum, and they're just kind of relaxing out there, when all of a sudden, without any sort of warning, this imposing figure appears right before them, and they are surrounded by this intensely bright light, this light shone around them. It says they were surrounded by this light, hemmed in by it, no escape. And there before them was this very intimidating, frightening figure. And as a consequence, they just hit the deck. They were terribly frightened. As the King James translates it, they were sore afraid. The, uh, it's literally, they feared a great fear. The Greek word for great is mega. They feared a mega fear at this point. They were frightened down to their socks. C.S. Lewis at one point talks about the fact that the angels that you see depicted in art are so much different than the angels that you run into in the scriptures. That when you see an angel in art, usually they're kind of pudgy and wimpish and, and uh, almost cuddly and um, hardly threatening beings. But everywhere you go in the Bible and you find an angel appearing to somebody, he frightens people out of their wits. These were intimidating, imposing figures. And these shepherds were frightened as we would be. Then verse 10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. He says, It's okay, boys. I'm not going to hurt you. The light show is just to get your attention. It says, Do I have it? They said, Yes, you have our attention. It says, The reason you're not to be frightened is, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. I think right there in that verse we see the reason that the angel brought the announcement of the Lord's birth to these shepherds. He wanted us to know that this was a source of joy for all the people, from the lowlifes to the, to the high rollers, that he came to be not just a savior for the wealthy and the sophisticated and the educated, the intelligent and the athletic and the good-looking. He came to be a savior for the, the poor and for the average, for the uneducated, for the homely, for the simple. He came to be a savior for all the people. And he couldn't have made that any clearer than by making his first announcement to these shepherds. For today in verse 11 he says, Today in the city of David, today, he says, there has been born for you 
for you outcast, rejected, uh, social bottom-rung shepherds, for you has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel in that brief announcement uses all three of the titles that are the main titles for the Lord in the Scripture. First of all, he calls him Christ. Uh, That word also can be translated Messiah, simply means the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that God has chosen to anoint with his power and spirit in a unique way. He says to these shepherds, that one has been born for you today. And the significance to these shepherds would be that they would understand that the, the one who had been promised from the days of Adam and Eve had finally arrived. Way back in Genesis 3.15, the Lord had said that there will come one day the offspring of the woman, and he is the one who will crush the serpent, the enemy of humanity. And since that, that day, in the lifetime of our first parents, mankind had been looking for this one who would come, who would undo what the enemy had done and reverse the damage and the hurt and the heartache that he had caused. And these angels are saying to these shepherds, He's come today. He's been born in the city of David. He calls him a savior. He says, this is the one who will be a savior for those who turn to him in faith. Savior is one who protects, who delivers, who rescues, who shelters. He says, this is the one that will be a shelter for those who are attacked and who will protect those who are abused and will lift up those who are fallen. He will be a savior for all people. And he also says he is Lord. This little baby is the one who is to be the owner and the master. The one that we owe complete and unconditional and total allegiance and loyalty and obedience to. He's not just a savior, but he is also a Lord. doesn't come into life just to take sides. He comes in to take over. But he's both. He's Savior and Lord. So the angel is telling these shepherds and us that this is the one who is worthy of our trust because he is our Savior. And he's worthy of our obedience because he is our Lord. When he says he's a Savior, he says that this is the one who will give to us everything that we need. When he says he's Lord, this is the one who will ask from us everything that we are. And then he says in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. They said, we'd like to find him. And the angel must have anticipated that. He says, well, this is how you can find him. Here is a sign for you. You go out to the mall, you look at the director, there's a little sign that says, you are here. angel says, if you want to know when you are there, here's the sign. Here's what to look for. Here is the, the mark of the royal birth of the Lord of glory. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. I'm sure at that point the shepherds must have started to get just a little skeptical. I think maybe this was a practical joke. Is that, is that you, Bernie? Bernie, is that you doing that? I thought this must have been some kind of special effect. You know, a royal birth, the Lord of glory, lying as a baby in a feeding trough. They couldn't picture that. And I'm sure at that point they must have been skeptical about this news. God and the angels knew this. And so suddenly, verse 13, to confirm the strange word, suddenly again without warning, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, 
praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Don't want you to be misled about what this heavenly host was in verse 13. The heavenly host is not some guy in a white dinner jacket sipping champagne welcoming you into paradise. But the word for host is literally the word for army. These were the the warriors of the armies of heaven who appeared suddenly with the solitary angel and filled the skies. These were warriors. Uh, If they had appeared today, they would be in... Battle fatigues decked out like the Green Berets or the Special Forces. And I'm sure that these uh, shepherds must have hit the deck in total terror uh, once again. But this confirmed that what this angel had spoken, there was no hallucination, it was no mirage. This was the real thing. That was the real sign of the royal birth. And their uh, word consists of two parts, glory to God in the highest. In other words, these angels sing a song of praise to the God who lives in the highest reaches of heaven for bringing his son to earth as a baby. And then he says, on earth, it's not just a heavenly reality, it's not just pie in the sky, but there's an earthly fruit of this birth that is peace on earth among men or in men with whom he is well pleased that is, among men who are the objects of his pleasure and grace, there will be peace. And these are the two things that he says the Savior and Lord offers to to men in in that day and offers to people in our day. Offers them, first of all, joy. Remember, the angel said, I bring you news of a great joy. The birth of the Son will bring great joy to people. And by joy, uh, the angel refers to contentment or happiness, a sense of delight and pleasure and completeness and wholeness. That's just so much missing, and nothing in our culture can offer that. Look around our culture today, you find more and more people uh, having fun and fewer and fewer people finding joy because it only can be found in the Son of God. And the other thing the angel says is he's the one who brings peace. That uh, one of the things that characterizes our culture is just a floating sense of anxiety and dis-ease. Psychologists call it angst. Just a sense that, that things are unsettled and there's a sense of instability. And what the angel is saying, here is the one that if you turn to him and trust and become the object of his good pleasure, who brings stability and peace, inner tranquility, harmony, sense of calm, sense of security, sense of confidence. Here's the one who brings joy and peace. Joy to replace the emptiness, peace to replace the anxiety. And the story goes on with the shepherds, as you're familiar, racing to the manger and worshiping, we can assume, at the feeding trough where they found the birth, telling everyone in Bethlehem, perhaps even in Jerusalem, the news that they had heard, and then returning to their flocks. We're told in verse 19 that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. All of these amazing things that were said about her firstborn and all the amazing things that happened around him. She treasured these up as a mother would treasure those precious memories about her firstborn. And I think the reason that we know that Mary did this is that she was the source of this, this account. We're told that when Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, that he he researched it carefully and he talked to eyewitnesses. 
And I think the bulk of his material about the infancy narratives came from the lips of Mary herself. Uh, Luke uh, looked her up. Joseph was long gone. Jesus, of course, had ascended to the Father, but Mary was still there. And she remembered the vivid details of the birth of this son. Well, just in closing, David and Claudia and, and Carrie will come and lead us in the closing song in just a moment. But I just wanted to ask us to see ourselves in, in the people in the story and ask ourselves the question, which one of these people uh, am I like? Particularly, I want to focus in on the innkeeper. Now, it's not the innkeeper's fault that he didn't have room. doesn't have room, he doesn't have room. But he became a symbol down through the year since of someone whose life is too busy and too crowded to make room for the Son of God. In contrast to that, we see the shepherds who were willing to drop everything in order to worship at the feet of this uh, infant Christ child. That's the question that I have uh, for you this morning. Is your life too busy, too crowded with pleasure and fun and work and family to make room for Jesus? I encourage you today to make room. He's the one that can bring joy and peace to life. Or are you a shepherd? who is willing, uh, as we close even this morning, to, to bow your heart in worship to this Christ King. Let's pray, and then we'll have Dave and Claudia sing for us. Lord, we thank you for the straightforward narrative. Uh, no frills in this, Lord, just uh, the straight story about the birth of your Son. And we thank you that you brought him to earth and that you were willing to to bring him into such humble circumstances in order that he might be able to identify with us no matter how humble, poverty-stricken, disadvantaged our circumstances might be that we can know that this Christ identifies with us because he's been there. Thank you for making him a Savior uh, for all people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.